to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We are in a part three here of a series we've been doing here on Sunday nights called Improbable Icons. And uh, kind of the point of this series is to say, hey, don't we all need some people to look up to? Don't we all maybe need some, some heroes or some men of faith, women of faith uh, that we can admire? And uh, in, in some regard, we have a culture that uh, constantly likes to sort of look into the lives of, of celebrities or things like that. And so maybe... We want to swing the other way and say, oh, we don't need any role models. We don't need to look at anybody's life or whatever. We can just figure this out on our own, and it's Jesus and me and my Bible, and we'll you know, figure this out. But the truth is, we are, we are made to have this desire in us to see someone else live it out. Uh, Paul wrote, follow me as I follow Christ. And, and uh, certainly Jesus is this full revelation of who God is, but post-Jesus' ascension, we need these men and women that can kind of say that we can kind of look to and say, you know, I, I think in a small, imperfect way, uh, they they are playing out what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus. Uh, the church, in different streams, has had you know saints. The Eastern Orthodox Church has icons, people that we kind of look to and say, wow, look at is this remarkable faith or compassion or whatever the case may be. Now. Many of us think about the people in the Bible that way, and we think, okay, David, Moses, these are heroes, these are people that are amazing, and they have faith and all this stuff. You hear the New Testament reading from Hebrews about Abraham, you think, wow, what a guy, what faith that must have taken, and all of this stuff. And it's easy to kind of think of these men and women of Scripture, these icons, so to speak, and say, well, they must have been perfect, and there's no way um, we can be like them. Well, actually, the reason this series is called Improbable Icons is because the, the men and women whose lives I've chosen are people that really weren't likely people. They're not the sorts that you would have said, yep, for sure, that guy. And we talked about Nehemiah, this ordinary wall builder dude who finds himself in building the wall around Jerusalem, rebuilding Jerusalem, finds himself caught up in the Jesus story of the triumphal entry, even though he didn't realize it. Last week, we talked about Ruth, who's a Moabite, an outsider, a person from a race that's synonymous with seduction and idolatry, and yet she throws herself at the feet of a Redeemer. Anyone see something familiar about this? And says, cover me, and finds redemption. And all of a sudden, she gets worked into a lineage that leads to the great King David, and eventually a lineage that leads to Jesus. We talked about last week how there is no story that is too stained that it cannot be redeemed if we would just be willing to throw ourselves at the feet of our Redeemer. And so my hope is, maybe you've picked up on this, but my hope is as we look at these different icons, we're not just saying, wow, this is an amazing person, but we're also saying, hey, that's not too different from where I'm at, or that's not too different from my situation, or the, the, the scenario in life that I find myself in. And even beyond that, I'm hoping that you're picking up on this, that you can see that each of these people find a way God somehow uses their improbable, imperfect story to be woven into the great story of Jesus. And isn't that the beauty about what happens with all of our lives? How is it that you 
and me? How is it that we all of a sudden got in on this story? How did that happen? It's God's grace. It's the beauty of what Jesus does. Well, tonight we're talking about Daniel, the life of Daniel, and and we're going to kind of look at just a few of the stories. I mean, a lot of us, if you've grown up in church, you're maybe familiar with the story of Daniel and the different uh, specific stories, you know, lions on flannel graphs and, uh, you know, burning furnaces and things like that. I mean, you, the, the stories in Daniel are pretty um, well-known, and they're very vivid, and they, they, they come a lot. They're these well-told, colorful stories. Uh, but the backdrop is interesting, and I want to I just kind of start with that as we, um, as we get into this. Daniel we're going to see, uh, is an icon of resistance. And we'll get to that uh, later in the talk. But what I want you to, to, to recognize about this is Daniel's living in Babylon. And uh, when we talked about Nehemiah, I told you last, uh, or a couple weeks ago when we talked about Nehemiah, that what happens to Israel, just kind of a brief recap toward the force of, of, of Old Testament history here, is po- after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel gets split into two halves. And there's Israel in the north and Judah in the south, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And, and a lot of the Old Testament, you know, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, tell the story of those good and bad kings and what eventually happened to those regions. Well, the northern part, the ten tribes, they get taken by the Assyrians in like 722 B.C. And the Assyrians aren't very nice guys at all. Their whole goal was to make a civilization disappear and so when they took people captive, they would try to spread them all across and, and force them to intermarry and, and so that the race kind of disappears. Well, uh, the Babylonians come and get Judah in about 587. There's three separate invasions that they come and take them. And the Babylonians are just a touch nicer. Uh, they, they actually take them and let, and, and let them live in, in Babylon. And so the story of Daniel is the story of a, of a Jewish boy who is in Babylon, who's grown up here. This is what he's known. To find ourselves in this story, to see ourselves in the story, we kind of need to say, well, what, what's Babylon? Like, what is Babylon? I mean, we, you know, it's besides a, a weird sci-fi TV show or something, you know, like, uh, what is this, this a symbol of or a picture of? Uh, Babylon in the scriptures in, in general is a picture of uh, a society or, or, or humankind organizing themselves apart from God. If you think about uh, even Babel, a related term maybe, the Tower of Babel represents the energies and efforts of humans trying to build something that goes up to, maybe up against, maybe independent of God. And then you, when you trace the story of Babylon through the Old Testament, the New Testament writers pick up on this imagery. And so in the book of Revelation, you have this uh, vivid, almost comic book action story of two cities and there's a Jerusalem and there's a Babylon there's a beast and a lamb there's a it, it's it's one that's the true thing and the other that's a, a a twisted parody of it that's sort of the the art form being used in Revelation but but Babylon in general is kind of this it's the systems structures and societies of humankind organizing themselves apart from or even against God in short the world <laughs> When you say the phrase, oh, the world, oh, that's the world, or look at what the world is doing, typically what we mean by this is Babylon. We mean the organized systems, structures, uh, societies of humans, of people against God or apart from God, uh, structures and societies that say, well, we don't need God. We don't need God in the mix. We've got our brains, and we've got this, and we've got skills, and we've got talents, and so we'll just figure it out. 
Now do you think that the story of Daniel might sound like us? Because if this is a young man trying to hang on to his faith in the midst of Babylon, in a very real way, that's our story. Hey, that's, that's you and I. We're, we're living as the people of God within a society that would like to not acknowledge anything about God, or that, that moreover uh, insists on um, um, saying, no, we, we, we don't need this. And, and I'm, not, I'm not talking government, first and foremost. I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about the way business is done. I'm talking about the way the world functions, where it's all about, uh, uh, hey, maybe if I do this, I could actually make more money this way, and maybe if I, this would actually be a cheaper uh, labor, and never mind that it may result in oppression or abuse. This is just a quicker way to get things done, and we've all heard the phrase, hey, it's just the way the world works, right? And how many times do we find ourselves as Christians saying, well, what am I supposed to do in the midst of this? How do I work in the midst of this? How do I live in the midst? How can I function? And I think Daniel's story can be instructive to us. Uh, As a whole, I think there's a way to think even more deeply about it because Babylon is an empire, and Daniel here is in the midst of a country, an empire that is looking to expand and to conquer and to take And he finds himself, on the one hand, being promoted and being successful within it, and yet, on the other hand, trying to stay true to his God. That's instructive, I think, for us, because it doesn't mean we say, oh, well, I don't, this whole thing, this whole country or the world or society is, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, so we're not going to do anything. We're just, you know. It it would be a mistake to just say, carte blanche, oh, well, I, I see what you're saying. America is Babylon. No, that would be a mistake. But it would also be a mistake, I suggest, to say that America is Jerusalem and to say that the holy people of God is this nation. And I think one of the most difficult things for us as Americans and as Christians is the confusion between an American we and a Christian we. There's lots to love about our nation. This weekend is all about celebrating that. When I, when I am... I lived in, in the, first lived in the U.S. when I was 10 years old, lived for three years with, when my parents moved here to go to Bible college. And then we moved back to Malaysia, and I was so sad that we had left America. I, I pulled my trumpet out and played the Star-Spangled Banner every morning on my trumpet. Okay? There's lots of incriminating bits about that. Yes, I played trumpet. And two, I play the Star-Spangled Banner every day. So, so I understand that there, there's something remarkable about our story, something extraordinary about this nation. There's no doubt about it. But it's very easy to say, carte blanche, everything America stands for is everything we as Christians stand for. It's, it's easy to kind of blur these lines and say, well, I, you know, this is ultimately what America means and is good for. And we assume, isn't this also what Jesus means and Jesus stands for. I want to say to you that the proper way to think about our role within America is as a resident alien. That you are a citizen, and I know I was a resident alien, I mean I was a citizen, but I've been, I spent a lot of my life, my my older, aware, conscious life being a green card or work visa, I've been a resident alien. But the way to think about our role here in this country is not that to be Christian is to be American, and to be American is to be Christian, vice versa, and whatever is good for America must be good for the Lord and His kingdom. 
we have to carefully sort of sort through that and say, wait a minute, we are aliens. If I was one of those preachers that says, turn to your neighbor, I would at that point say, turn to your neighbor and say, you're an alien. But you are. You don't belong. You and I are like Daniel in Babylon. That doesn't mean we can't find a way to thrive in Babylon as Daniel did. That doesn't mean we can't find a way to rise to influence within the structures of Babylon as Daniel did. But it does mean that fundamentally we're living in a resistance against Babylon. We and the empire are not one. And whether you fill in the blank as saying, well, the empire is the empire of capitalism. Okay, maybe. Or maybe you say, well, the empire is whatever you fill in the blank. Either way, there are lines of overlap and there are lines of distinction. And think about the ways, just sort through it in your mind. In what ways are we different from? In what ways is there overlap? That to say we as Christians is similar to we the people of America. In what ways are those similar? And in what ways are they different? And think through that. Very quiet. Yes. Yes. A good weekend to talk about Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 through 14. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now, stop for a second. Because what we're going to try to look at the story and answer is, how do you live in resistance? What, in what way? And this guy, Daniel's caught in this interesting situation because he's got these convictions and he's not going to violate these convictions, but he's got a boss who's stuck in the quintessential middle management dilemma. <laughs> I'm supposed, the guard's like, dude, man, I'm just the messenger. I'm just middle management. I don't care if you eat or don't eat, but if you end up looking worse, that's my head. Like, literally. And so Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And so he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. The first thing I want to say about what it means to live in resistance is that Daniel resists through humble obedience. Humble obedience. And many times we hear the word resistance and live against the grain of culture, uh, and and we assume, not maybe any of you, but I I just read a story this weekend where, you know, sort of the assumption is to live in resistance means uh, to accost your server at Chili's, you know, and to sort of begin to tell them that they're going to hell in between the appetizers and the desserts, you know, or something. And we have ways of thinking, well, this is what it means to live out the resistance. Consider that Daniel's living in resistance involved a humble obedience to God. There's several things about this scene that I think are interesting in, in that light. One, Daniel sees no separation between his role of, as a person in the king's court and his faith. Or if you like, for Daniel, there's no separation between work and faith. Now, for all the separations we're anxious about, the one we should really pay attention to 
as how Christians have built a wall of separation between work and faith. It's as if we say, well, my faith is this and it means this and it means this, but my work is, well, that's what I got to do to get a dollar and this is just how the world works. And Daniel says, no, I don't care how the world works. This is how I work. I'm not eating this wine. When you think about how we used to talk about faith, we used to talk about faith, and in some places people still do, we used to talk about faith as transportation. And what I mean is this. We used to talk about faith as transportation from earth to heaven. Remember the big diagrams of this is the hill that you're on, this is the hill where God is, and there's this big chasm, and there's the cross. It was wonderful, very simple. You know? And faith, we told a whole generation of Americans, faith is about transportation. It's about getting you from earth to heaven. But what if the Bible really gives us a picture of faith not as transportation, but as transformation? That faith is really about how heaven breaks in to earth. That actually sounds like the way Jesus preached. When Jesus talked and he healed the masses and he did this or did that or fed the hungry, he said, look, the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. The very prayer that he taught us to pray that we pray almost every week here on Sunday night, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe the reason we separate work from faith is because faith for us is about transportation. It's how I get from here to la la cloud land up there. And maybe what the New Testament really says is that faith in the Messiah is how heaven breaks into earth. Faith in Jesus is how God's kingdom continues to come to earth. What does that mean? Heard a story last week about a young man who works as a barista in Starbucks. And it was his workplace. And he began to pray every day, Lord, may your kingdom come in Starbucks as it is in heaven. What a beautiful prayer. I know it sounds funny, but really that's taking quite seriously Jesus' prayer. And so he would pray that. He said, Lord, may your kingdom come in Starbucks as it is in heaven. And so he, what he would try to do is make every cup, every drink perfect. Now, I don't know if you're like OCD in some ways, like I am a little bit, but when I get my cup at Starbucks, I try to get the logo to line up with the cup's logo and the... Did any of you do that? Am I the only weird one? But I'm like, line it up, you know. Now I can have the... Okay, this guy did that. He would like, he would, he would put the right kind of foam and then he would just snap everything perfectly and he'd serve it to the person. And then once in a while, he got up the courage that if he sensed that a person was down, or whatever, he might just write a, a, a phrase or a word, you know, the sun will rise, or, or, or hope, or, or, you know, I don't know, I don't know the sun was, I'm making that up, that's kind of cheese ball. But he would write something, okay, he would write something that was epic, no. Uh, and he would just write a line, maybe a phrase, and he would just write it on the little sleeve, and it wasn't like, you know, John 3.16, it was just, a, you know, a little something. That's okay too, but, but what he did was something different. And it was his way of saying, my faith in Jesus and my work in Starbucks means that the kingdom of heaven is coming to Starbucks. Amen? What if we thought like that? That's how Daniel thought. Daniel says, my identity, my faith in Yahweh means that the way I work is different. I'm not going to drink this. I'm not going to. But what I find so amazing is, 
And this is, a good, this is good advice if you ever find yourself as an employee caught between the boss's commands and the middle manager who doesn't want you to, to do what you want. Daniel, who does Daniel put the power, whose hands does Daniel put the power of the decision in? Does Daniel say, well, I don't care, guard. Your head, not my head. I must obey God. So, whatever. He could have. What Daniel does is he says, all right, all right, I, I, I respect that you're in a position of middle management here, and it's your head if I end up looking worse. So, so let's do a trial period. Let's test my request for 10 days. If I end up looking better, you decide. Who's powered Whose hands did he put that in? I think this is good advice for us in the workplace. And you say, well, you know, maybe your boss is asking you to do that. You know, I was talking to a young man from our Sunday night service who, who, whose owners felt like he needed to fire this employee for just once coming in late. And she was coming in late because of some very devastating personal issues in her life. And, and, and we were talking about this over lunch this week. Well, what if, as, a ma- as the manager, he could say, okay, wait, 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 wait. I know you want me to fire her because you think productivity is going down, but, but, Give me, could you give me two weeks to try my way of leading? And, and, and then his way of leading would be to use something more personal and dignifying and honoring to an individual. And if in two weeks she's not showing anything, whatever, maybe a month, then maybe you decide. Do you see the difference in approach here? Daniel's way of resistance is not an excuse to, excuse me, stick it to the man. Daniel's way of resistance is humble. Is way of, it's a way of saying, I am going to obey God, but I'm going to find a way to say, let my bosses make the decision. You, you decide. Test out if this is going to be better. As a result, you read about Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. It says, and it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. And the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss And now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. What are you doing, Daniel? This is Babylon. Run! No? See, it's not so simple. I I, I think if you hear a sermon about living within the empire or within the world that says to you with very clean and simple lines, well, you just, it's easy, just... Be against all that. I'm against all that. You should be too. I think it's more nuanced than that. Because here's Daniel honoring his faith and his identity and not, quote-unquote, compromising, and yet finding a way to rise to influence. He's actually a good... He must be actually good at what he's doing. I wonder sometimes how many times we sort of excuse poor workmanship for persecution. You know? Oh, well, I'm, I think I'm being persecuted for my faith in my workplace. No, you might just be a bad employee. <laughs> you know? Sorry. N- none of you, but the people listening on the podcast. <laughs> the story, we'll pick it up here in, in Daniel 6, verse 6. And so these administrators, others are starting to get uh, uh, jealous. Actually, verse 5, finally these men um, uh, said... We'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They kind of know, this guy is going to do everything by the book unless it's something that violates his faith in his God. And so the administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. 
The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered. What a bunch of schemers. In accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And so King Darius put the decree in writing. And now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Notice that the Bible says, when Daniel had learned that the decree had been published. There's no excuse here for Daniel. Oh, I didn't know there was such a law. Oh, that's the law? Hmm, interesting. Turns and prays. And these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. And so they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree? Just curious, king. Did did you do this? Do we remember, right? During the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den. The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians. It's important to talk about the way that Daniel lives in resistance without talking about prayer, because Daniel resists through prayer. What I want, to, want you to see about this story is while living in Babylon, while living in this city, he turns and faces another city. Now, our Old Testament reading tonight, I don't know if you're connecting the dots with this, but is a prayer from 1 Kings 8. It's the prayer of King Solomon. And Solomon says, almost prophetically, maybe prophetically, says, Lord, if it ever happens that we disobey and we're unfaithful and we find ourselves in a foreign land, (laughs) whoops, it happened. May we turn our faces toward Jerusalem, toward this temple, and pray and repent. What is Daniel doing? Prayer is what roots Daniel in who he is. Prayer is a way for Daniel to remember, I am not of this world. Prayer is the way that Daniel remembers, I'm not, I don't fit in here, I don't belong here, I'm a stranger, I'm an alien, I don't belong. That city, that's my home. Prayer is what roots him. Prayer is what defines him. Prayer is the thing that orients his life. What defines us? What roots us? Which city shapes your identity? And when I say city, I don't mean Chicago, New York, you know. I mean city metaphorically. Which is it? St. Augustine, I don't know, 1500, 1600, 17, wrote a book called The City of God and talked about the world as one city and God's kingdom as this other city. Which city do you look to to orient your life and decisions? Through what lens do you evaluate life's decisions? Political season here in America has already begun. Uh, and and there's messages and campaigns and slogans. And all I want to say about all of that is this. What's your lens that you hear those things through? 
what city orients the way you think about politics? Is it the city of God, the one that Jesus preached, or is it the one that Jefferson described? I think our founding fathers were great, but what shapes the lens? Because for all of us, we're saying, you know, as good as any political philosopher or theorist was, Jesus is my king. And so more than the words of a founder, more than the speeches of a president, more than the campaigns of a candidate, is the sermon of King Jesus Christ. Amen? What city do you turn to and pray toward? Which city defines your identity? For Daniel, it was clear. It's Jerusalem. I belong to the people of God, and the king of this city may have decreed that I can't pray towards you, but the king that I serve says that I do. And so I'm not filtering my decisions through some rhetoric or theory or famous speech or whatever. I'm filtering my decisions through Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount. And that's hard to divide along political lines. Daniel resists through prayer. But I think at the core of this, if we were to say, well, how? How is he able to do this? What kind of motivation, what empowered him to live this way? To live in a humble, obedient, prayerful resistance? Daniel resists because he knows he's not forgotten. This is the story continues with Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. We know this. Verse 19 of chapter 6, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servants of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty, And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. How can you live in the midst of a world and a culture that's organizing itself against and apart from God? How do you live like a person that doesn't belong? It's because you believe that God has not forgotten you. Daniel resists because he knows he's not forgotten. He resists because he knows he's not forgotten. Listen, I think a lot of times we reach for other things because deep down we fear that God has forgotten us. A lot of times, well, maybe I got to have this, and maybe I got to have this, and maybe I need that extra thing, and maybe I need to work these extra hours, maybe I need to say yes to this, maybe, and, and, and maybe for many of us, the root of that anxiety Or that fear is that you think you're in Babylon without a God who cares. That you think that you're stuck in your workplace, in your marriage, in your school, in your situation, whatever Babylon is in your life. And you think that you're stuck there with a God who's forgotten you. What must it have been like for Daniel to have grown up in Babylon? What must it have been like to grow up in this other city and to be sure that your God, where is he? 
If ever there was a people who understood the anguish of, oh yeah, well, if your God is good and loving and powerful, then how come this happened? It was the people living in Babylon. They understood that. It's difficult for us to imagine that. Imagine being pulled out of this country and forced to live somewhere else, knowing that this city, this home, your home, is burning in ruins. And people all around you are saying, God, what God? Where's your God now? Whew, a lot of good that did. You were a Christian? Whoo. And maybe you're in situations like that, in your workplace or in these different environments where it just doesn't seem like there's a God who cares or who sees you. It's very difficult to live in resistance against the flow of the world, against the flow of culture against the flow of materialism, secularism, whatever it is, unless we know that our God has not forgotten us. For Daniel, it was something he couldn't shake. He says, I know it. This is my God. This is what he does. God hears us. Listen to his prayer in Daniel 9, 17 through 18. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous. I love that. The reason you can know that you're not forgotten in your workplace, in your everyday life, is not because you're standing on your own righteousness. That's good news. You don't have to say, God, remember me because I'm doing so good. You might be here tonight thinking, no, I've kind of made loads of mistakes, kind of compromised a bunch, kind of gotten some shady business deals, kind of, yeah, separation, work and faith, yep, guilty, yep. But we can repent and say, God, it's because of your great mercy. Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your Name. What I want you to know tonight, if you belong to Jesus, you may be a stranger and an alien in this world. You may be the only one in your workplace that is not willing to say, well, that's just the way the world works. You may be the only one who's not willing to fire someone just because. You may be the only one not willing to say, well, if we do this, we could get more profit. You may be the only one willing to say, hey, hey, what about and as a person, you may be the only one willing to resist that flow, but you know what? You're marked with God's name. You're marked with the name of Jesus. And that means you're not forgotten when you go to work on Tuesday. It means you're not forgotten when you go home tonight. It means you're not forgotten. Daniel is for us an icon of resistance. He lived in resistance to the empire because he knew God had not forgotten his people. Tonight I want to pray for us and pray for any of us who feel for whatever the circumstances and situations are, you feel, you know, it just feels like I'm the only one who sees it this way, who wants to go, so I'm the only one. I want to say to you, you're not. Part of the reason we gather each week on Sunday nights is not just to check the list, yeah, I came to church, is to remember that these are all the people who are living the resistance with you. 
This is like that, that scene, you know, in Star Wars, whatever, when they find more rebels against the Empire. It's like, <gasps> this is the resistance. These are the people who know that we are a colony of the kingdom of God inside a nation that has decided to organize itself away from God. We are the resistance. And we are not forgotten. I'm going to try to pray from the back of the room so that I can greet some of you on the way out tonight. I'm going to try to do that. Hopefully Mike Wise will be okay. But would you kind of close your eyes and maybe open your hands out towards the Lord as a sign of surrender? And and maybe take a moment and, and confess to the Lord, God, this is my Babylon. This is what feels like Babylon to me. And it's very hard to live in resistance to that. All my friends are having sex out of marriage, or all my friends are doing this. It's very hard to live in resistance toward that. And to know that you're not forgotten. To know that you bear the name of Jesus, that you are his people, that you belong to his kingdom. You are like Abraham, looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. You are like Daniel, turning your eyes towards the heavenly city and saying, God, may your kingdom come in Starbucks as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come in King Supers as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So Holy Spirit, fill us tonight with strength, with courage, with a reminder that as much as we love our country and as much as we're so grateful for our country, we know that ultimately we are citizens of heaven. We belong to your kingdom. Teach us what it means to live out together as a colony of the kingdom of heaven. Here. Here in Colorado Springs. All the different neighborhoods, school districts, workplaces, colleges, where your people are called by your name. We are not forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen.